Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. This week, we learned that Donald Trump's fundraising committees plowed an astonishing $29 million into paying the former president's legal fees during the second half of last year. He spent $50 million on legal defenses during all of 2023, money that was taken from donations to his political outfits. For many political observers, this is a sign of his weakness as a general election candidate. Not only does he face extraordinary legal jeopardy while running for president, it's also forcing him to siphon off immense sums that might otherwise fund his campaign. Today, we're going to take another angle on this story by putting it in the context of the long history of right-wing grift in America. For many decades, shrewd fundraising gurus have bombarded conservative voters with all sorts of hallucinatory claims about leftist villains and other assorted apocalyptic threats, all designed to separate them from their money. And for just as long, they have obliged. To situate Trump within this hallowed tradition, we've invited on Jeff Caviservice, the author of A Great History of the Republican Party called Rule and Ruin, as well as a substack on the virtues of political moderation. Welcome, Jeff. Good to be here, Greg. So as Trump fights off legal charges related to his insurrection, the stealing of state secrets and other matters, it's been known since at least last July, if not before, that Trump was diverting huge amounts of donor money into his legal fees. And remember, in the wake of January 6th, three years ago, he used his stolen election lie to raise boatloads of cash, another form of fundraising grift. So untold numbers of donors know his M.O., they know where their money is going, yet they keep sending it to him anyway. 
So P.T. Barnum was one of the classic American figures. Uh, he was a sort of circus master, but he was also really someone who pioneered this idea of the grift, but with a knowing cynical edge to it, because he argued that when people would go to one of his sideshows and they would see the mermaid uh, woman or whatever this uh, sideshow exhibit might be, they would know they were being ripped off, but in some sense, they appreciated the grift for its artistry. And I sometimes feel that's what Trump is doing with regard to his own followers. Well, absolutely. There is a there is an extraordinary level of artistry to it. Um, let's talk about the history here. Since at least the McCarthy era, conservative fundraisers have recognized that the right-wing masses are ripe for the picking, or at least their money is. How did this tradition kind of start to develop? How, how did it evolve? So it's an interesting question because you can also point throughout history to left-wing or at least Democratic Party attempts to grift their followers. Indeed, one of the great grifters of all time uh, was Boss Tweed of uh, the Tammany Ring in New York City, who drained off immense amounts of public funds and still was able to prosper and thrive uh, within the political scene of his time. Uh, But what we saw, I think, really beginning with the America First Committee and the isolationist movement in the late 30s and early 40s, and then continuing on into the McCarthy period in the early 1950s, was the fact that an awful lot of conservative followers believed that they had been betrayed by the country's elite, um, that the elite had stabbed them in the back, uh, that what was less to be feared, perhaps, was invasion from abroad, uh, so much as subversion from within. And that made them easy marks for people who professed to be raising money to combat these insidious forces, but who, in fact, just applied these funds for their own benefit. There's there's a through line here, though, in the sense that this sort of talk really enabled conservative leaders to build mass political movements, but in many cases, it shaded into really pretty sordid money-making schemes, didn't it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I can think of plenty of uh, organizations, particularly back in the Tea Party days, where almost 100% of the money that they raised through uh, fundraisers went to their own administration. Um, and the idea that any of this money was being applied from presumably good-hearted donors to the causes for which uh, they thought they were supporting was just laughable. And Rick Rick Perlstein, the historian, calls this the long con, and he talks about all sorts of uh, bizarre medical quack things that were sold via conservative networks and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that side of the history, going back to maybe... Richard Viguerie and, and in the seventies, that that's really one of the main pioneers at this sort of thing, is isn't he? So Rick Perlstein and I do disagree on some matters, but I think we both agree that uh, Richard Viguerie was a real innovator in this area of direct mail fundraising. Um, and Viguerie essentially took the lists of people who voted for Barry Goldwater, the Republican uh, presidential candidate in the nineteen sixty four elections, and was able to build other lists of people who would support conservative causes and would give money to that end. Uh, Goldwater himself was actually a big pioneer in being one of the major uh, small donor recipients uh, and among the first of those to run for president who probably raised more money from grassroots supporters than he did from corporations or political committees. Um, And, you know, in a sense, Vigory just knew the right buttons to tap to make people give money and support, which was that in some sense, Goldwater and other conservative leaders who followed were embodying their hopes uh, and their fears and their resentments against a liberal order that seemed to be passing them by and changing the country that they knew and loved out of recognition. 
And Goldwater was among the first of those people to say, no, I will stand for you um, and I will resist this. But on the other hand, Goldwater was also, whether he knew it or not, partaking of a much longer tradition of American populism, uh, which is where ultimately these energies derived. Right. A big part of these appeals over the decades has been the idea that the country it was or is slipping away from conservatives. In the 50s, it was the communist threat. In the 60s and 70s, the freedom movements. In the 80s, it was gay rights. In the 90s, it was the new world order of demonic liberal elites seeking global domination, etc. I mean, that really is a big through line here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, one could find parallels on the left as well. Um, but really, increasingly uh, in years as the two parties have really switched their bases, uh, there's been a sense on the part of the working class that they are ignored, overlooked, and despised by the powers that be uh, in both the Republican and the Democratic parties. And this has made them vulnerable, I think, to outsider attempts to raise money, supposedly on their behalf, to combat these large amorphous forces. Let's talk a little bit about Trump. I mean, he brings a kind of interesting innovation to all this. I, I, I grew up in New York City, and my grandparents actually lived right near Jamaica Estates in Queens, which is where Trump grew up. I spent some time around there. By the way, though he portrays himself as an outer borough scrapper, that neighborhood was the neighborhood of local elites, judges, lawyers, etc. I kind of know that part of the world a little bit. And he was very well schooled in the New York City tabloid wars of the 80s and 90s. So he grew practiced in making very crude mass appeals. It wasn't a big leap from there to taking it national. I mean, his entry into national politics was the birther conspiracy, which is really very much a type of, of, of grift that fits in with this tradition, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny that you have that connection because my dad also, for a time when he was growing up, lived in Jamaica, Queens. Uh, I think he You're would kidding. say- You're kidding. Where? There's, <laughs> uh, it's true. Um, I think he actually, his particular neighborhood was St. Albans, but it's definitely that same part of the world. I think he would say that there was a good side of, of Jamaica even and a bad side. I oh, yeah. Right. The good side. But you know, Trump also has been able to channel a kind of outer borough resentment against Manhattan elites, which he has blown up to mass scale uh, in national politics. You know, John Lindsay, in some sense, this incredibly handsome, seemingly limitlessly wealthy uh, wasp who was mayor of New York City in the 60s and 70s, was exactly this kind of figure who attracted that enmity from uh, Queens and Brooklyn and Staten Island and, and all the rest of it. So it's a familiar dynamic, let's put it that way. And remember, tr uh, Trump, Trump really racialized it a lot, right? His tabloid appeals really were pretty racial, the fights with Al Sharpton and that sort of stuff. And remember, one of his big bids for national attention was to go after the Central Park Five. I agree, but I also think that Trump is standing in a longer tradition there uh, because John Lindsay, after yeah. all, in the 1965 New York mayoral race was... Um, uh, uh, he was running up not just against the Democratic candidate, uh, but also against William F. Buckley Jr., running on the conservative line. And Buckley, somewhat right. against his previous expectations, ended up getting, uh, becoming the channel and tribune of these resentments of the outer boroughs, um, particularly the lower middle class and working classes, against racial change. So again, it's a long tradition. You know, it's it's funny how Trump, Trump kind of grafted onto these tendencies very effortlessly. I mean, the central 
feature of his campaign in 2016, the border wall, was another sort of crude mass appeal like this. It's not an accident that Steve Bannon pulled a lot of fundraising grift around the wall, as you'll recall. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Trump, like a lot of other populist leaders before him, particularly George Wallace, uh, presents this kind of opportunity to fleece his followers in the name of his cause. But, you know, you and I have discussed this somewhat complicated question about what is the link between conservatism of years past and Trumpism, because obviously they're opposed on a number of points. But what I think they really have in common um, is a kind of Manichaeanism, uh, a belief that the world is divided into the forces of the entirely good and the entirely evil, um, and that only the leader of the forces of the good can save uh, the common people from the machinations of, of the evildoers. Um, and, and, you know, what isn't worth doing in that cause, whether it be giving your life savings to Donald Trump or committing violence to stop the left from committing their evil ways. Um, but I think there's also uh, a sense in which um, conservatives really have channeled the identification of their followers um, into this sense of larger cause um, and belonging in a way that was kind of foreign to American politics in the past. Um, in the past, before people were separated into such uh, divided partisan camps, um, it was not uncommon for people to vote a, a mixed ticket, um, to consider a Democrat or a Republican politician on the basis of his or her personal qualities and the kinds of policies that they were espousing. Nowadays, it's really us or them. You're either on my side or you're on the side of the irredeemably evil opponents. Yeah. Well, I want to center the idea of victimization and persecution in what you're saying there. If you think about the primary recent grifts that Trump has undertaken, it really is all there, right? Raising money off the lie that you were cheated in the 2020 election, meaning you, the voters, were cheated, which he said relentlessly. It's something that kind of eludes our attention. But his communication with his voters on this point is very clear. This isn't about me. It's about you. You were victimized. Then raising more money to fight off legal travails related to illegally trying to reverse that election. That also centralizes Trump as the victim. And now when he says, I am your retribution to his followers, he essentially makes his own struggles against victimization and persecution into their struggles. I, isn't that, I mean, it's it just, there's sort of an uncanny quality here. I mean, he seems, it's, 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 he's such a strange figure because on the one hand, he seems sort of so haphazard and random and out of control, but on the other, he's duplicating all these tendencies so perfectly. Yeah, he is fascinating in that sense, or he would be if he wasn't so dangerous. Um, you know, it's also worth considering <laughs> yeah. that, you know, Donald Trump is one of the least religious figures ever to hold the office of the presidency. Um, it is patently obvious that he has no acquaintance whatsoever uh, with the Bible in any personal, meaningful sense. Um, and yet his most fervent followers now are the people who claim themselves to be among the most religious people in the country, particularly the evangelicals. Um, and, you know, it's also worth considering that Richard Hofstadter wrote, you know, a classic book on anti-Americanism and uh, anti-intellectualism in American life published in 1963. And if I recall his thesis correctly, it's been a long time since I read it. He basically said that anti-intellectualism is simply part of democracy. It's always been there. It's never going away. It particularly has been associated with evangelical religion um, and also with a kind of pro-business boosterism. And you can see the way that these are coming together in the form of Donald Trump right now. Um, and his campaign 
isn't getting more religious in the sense that it's actually drawing upon actual biblical testimony or anything like that. It's presenting Trump as a Christ figure, as someone who's enduring crucifixion through litigation, which therefore invites retribution against the forces of evil. Uh, Like I said, it would be interesting if it wasn't so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at is a certain type of reactionary mindset, which which makes those folks susceptible to a type of appeal that says the country is slipping away from the real authentic American people who are getting outnumbered or replaced. You see this with with uh, evangelical voters. Polls really show that those types of voters are really prone to drastic action in response to what they perceive as a as a major emergency, a national emergency, make make America great again is all also about this, of course. I mean, so is great replacement theory. The big lie of the stolen election was at its core all about how urban minority voters are stealing the country from real Americans. January 6th was all about redeeming it. Now Trump is being prosecuted unjustly, as you say, almost like a Christ-like figure. And, and this to his voters is an effort to take him as the leader away from them. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, except that I think that what might puzzle future historians is to know why this kind of appeal gained particular traction at this moment in history and with this particular actor in the form of Donald Trump. You know, because there have been plenty of parallels in the past. Uh, We already mentioned Joseph McCarthy, but ultimately his reach was limited and his duration in American politics was also short. Uh, The John Birch Society, gained an enormous amount of traction and in some ways could be seen as a kind of forerunner of the QAnon movement. And I honestly think that the Birch Society was one of the worst grifting organizations because it not only took the money of its followers, but it also took uh, vast amounts of their time and and their family and friendships um, and even some of their business responsibilities in the course of of recruiting them into this all-consuming cause that was really built on a lie. Uh, I think almost all of the figures around uh, Robert Welch, the founder of the society, knew that he was out of his tree when he said that Dwight Eisenhower, the president of the United States, was a conscious, dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. Um, they knew that there was no way to actually prove that America was 80% communist controlled, as Welch alleged. And I think most people who actually came across this literature, even from within Birch circles, knew that the idea that the University of Chicago had this little circle of eggheads who were prepared to take away America's Americans' right to vote or hold property was nuts. And yet they went along with it. But somehow or other, this kind of thinking and behavior and grifting uh, patterns was relegated to the margins of American politics, I would say really until about the Tea Party era. And then the Tea Party was very much the forerunner of the Trump era in this regard. That's very interesting. I mean, one one sign of this that I think is pretty alarming is the full-on embrace of great replacement theory by senior members of the Republican Party. It's really gone mainstream at the highest levels of Republican power. You have Elise Stefanik, Mike Johnson, two of the leading House Republicans in the country, actual GOP leaders, embracing it. That's really, I think, a sign that the Republican Party is buying into this type of politics. You're the historian, so let me ask you, is it different? Is that different from what came before? It feels different. Um, Again, you know, the question is whether this is a, a, a real thing that the politicians actually believe. My guess is that Elise Stefanik is entirely a creature of cynicism and opportunism. And I say this because I've known her since she entered uh, politics, or, or at least the House. Um, 
But, you know, there is a grade of truth to which the proponents of this uh, conspiracy can point to, which is that American demographics have changed immensely. You know, I'm a Generation Xer, so I was actually born around the moment when America hit its lowest percentage in terms of its citizens who were uh, of foreign birth. And now we're up to close to being the highest that the country has ever seen. So, you know, there is some sense that things are changing and why was this change? And we didn't vote for this change. Maybe it was done to us by malign forces. And that's how you can actually get traction if you're a cynical politician trying to put this theory over on the voters. On the other hand, there's just some sense in which the conservative tendency towards conspiracy theorizing has just gone completely off the rails. You know, there's a somewhat famous quote by C.S. Lewis, uh, which is that a little bit of the tendency to want to see through things, uh, to see beyond the established uh, interpretation of the way things are, can be healthy. But if you're seeing through everything, then you're actually seeing nothing because the whole world is just made of class. And I think that's sort of the point at which the conservative movement is reaching nowadays in the extremity of some of its beliefs and conspiracies. Well, you have provided the opening to talk about what you knew was coming, and that's Taylor Swift and <laughs> Travis Kelsey, right? It's not possible. You made to talk, me do it. Yeah, it's not possible to talk about politics without talking about them. But but you really can connect all this to the current right wing freakout over those two. They should be seen as a wholesome heartland couple, as as I think Ross Douthat wrote. But but because Swift sometimes reaches huge numbers of people with the language of cultural liberalism, and Kelsey isn't anti-vax, it all must be nefarious because it cannot be true that this much of the country is socially liberal just as it cannot be true that MAGA Nation was outnumbered in the last election by ordinary Democratic voting Americans. The only acceptable way to explain all this is with deranged conspiracy theories. Uh, you put it exactly right. I mean, Douthat, I think, said that the uh, Travis and Taylor relationship is actually a literal hallmark Christmas film plot, you know, where the beautiful blonde woman gets tired of dating cynical musicians and uh, ghastly Hollywood types and finds redemption in the arms of a bearded all-American quarterback type. The idea that this would be some kind of psyop, uh, a plot by the powers that be, uh, is absurd. And, and, you know, when you actually, I can't only imagine this, but, you know, if someone is in a bar trying to explain to a normie um, that the NFL is in on the regime's plot with the media and the referees are going to throw the Super Bowl to Kansas City so that this will enable uh, Travis and Taylor to uh, tell the young people of the United States that they need to vote for Joe Biden and get vaccinations. The Pierce person hearing this is just going to back away slowly. Uh, and one wonders if, you know, maybe this yeah. is peak conspiracy and, and Republicans will realize that maybe they've gone a bit far here. But again, it does, in some sense, represent the logical culmination of a worldview where every institution is not to be trusted where the story you hear from any supposedly reputable source must, by definition, be a lie, where any form of expertise is just part of the conspiracy to punish you, the little person. Um, And so, you know, we're at a point where absurdity really is the logical conclusion from the kind of political tendencies that we've seen over the last several decades. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, respectable conservatives obviously are all expressing horror about the, the the conspiracy theorizing about Swift and Kelsey, although I don't see them really kind of accepting or acknowledging that part of the reason 
these conspiracy theories are taking root is because the alternate explanation, the reality that cultural liberalism is really it has really traveled very far and wide and is is very mainstream, uh, is 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 not something that a lot of those voters can accept. I, I'd like to see them reckon with that. I mean, think about uh, some of the battles over Target and Bud Light. Uh, when 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 corporations try to appeal to socially liberal Americans because they want to make profits, it it can't just be that. It can't just be that they're struggling and trying to figure out how to keep pace with the evolving culture to you know make money. <laughs> it's got to be an elite conspiracy in boardrooms to manipulate the public into being becoming more liberal. It, it, that can't be actually happening organically. You know, I think there's something complicated going on here, which again relates to the switch between the two parties of their respective bases. Um, and, you know, I, as someone who at least is on the center right, would argue that higher education in the university world has been trending towards a kind of cultural progressivism, uh, which in its sphere has been very successful, which has completely marginalized anything relating to conservatism. And that this in turn has actually made education generally seem uh, suspect to increasing numbers of conservatives and even some people, I would say, on the center left. Um, but along with this has gone an overall suspicion of and rejection of authority derived from education more generally. Um, and that is extremely unhealthy, particularly if it's being promulgated by a, a party that actually seeks to become the governing party. Um, and this is why you're actually sort of seeing this kind of Andrew Jackson reversion to the spoil system and the kind of extreme populism that says anyone who has the experience of being a mom or balancing the household checkbook is therefore completely qualified to run a cabinet department of uh, the most uh, powerful country in the world. Uh, and that's where Trump has both channeled this kind of incipient populism, uh, but it also predated him and has come to its own uh, sort of trajectory without him. And where we've ended up is that $50 million of donor money is going to pay his legal fees. <clears throat> Again, you're the historian. So can you, is there anything that compares to that kind of level of grift? $50 million. It's a very impressive sum. Uh, I think you really have to go back to the days of Boss Tweed to come up with comparable sums that have been siphoned off from the supporters of a particular uh, politician to line his or her own pockets. Yeah, well, you keep throwing boss tweet at me, and I don't have a good answer to that. So maybe that maybe we should call it a day, Jeff. Let, let, let me just add, you know, there. I was recently rereading the autobiography of Henry Stimson, and he concludes with uh, a saying that the most deadly sin I know is cynicism, and I think it's the cynicism that strikes us about this grafting tendency. I mean, it's that cynicism that connects us to other very dark projects in American history, such as Jim Crow which in many ways was a cynical attempt by the Bourbon uh, leaders of the South, the wealthiest element, to get the uh, working class in line by convincing them that the enemy was African-Americans. Um, and I think some of that we're seeing in the present day as well, because to the extent that Donald Trump has any positive program or the Republican Party has any positive program at this moment, it's to pass more corporate tax cuts. Um, and I think there actually really does need to be an actual party that represents the working class and doesn't simply indulge their worst and most conspiratorial fantasies. But that is not the Republican Party that we have right now. Well, it's interesting that you draw that connection because obviously a lot of these uh, conservative and Republican elites are 
pretty heavily devoted to the project of 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 various types of disenfranchisement right now through voter suppression and extreme gerrymandering and other uh, serious counter-majoritarian tactics. So I think there's a parallel there to what you're talking about, isn't there? I, I do believe there is, Greg. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. This was a great discussion. Much appreciated. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 